El Fanboy, episode 13. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the 13th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. This is Mario Francisco Robles, MFR, here with you, and I'm going to begin this 13th episode with a little mini-review of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. So I was fortunate enough last week to be able to head into the city and check out an IMAX 3D press screening for Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. And, uh, you know, I like to start by saying I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I really did. I had a very good time. I laughed. There were a couple times there where I got a little emotional towards the very, very end. And uh, overall, you know, uh, a good a good thumbs up experience at the theater. But I also have to say that, you know, the movie is very frustrating because, like, without getting into spoilers, the movie had, like, all the ingredients there to be something truly special. And then, just like the first, it was just, it was, like, so much more softball than it could have been. Too many moment-killing one-liners. Too many times it took the piss out of its own drama. And that's especially troublesome for a movie with so many emotional ideas at its heart. Beautiful themes of family, fatherhood, loss, redemption, unspoken bonds of love. And then to have all that stuff basically played for laughs a lot of the times. You know, for me, that was just a bummer. It's, it's, like, it's like dating a very emotional person who makes themselves very emotionally unavailable to you. You know, like you really care about them. You want to love them. You want to know them. You want to be there for them, but they just keep you at arm's length. And that's what Guardians Volume 2 was to me. You know, that's that's why I couldn't go higher than a B. You know, for those of you who subscribe to the Fanboy YouTube page, there's a video review where I go far more in depth, but I just couldn't go higher than a B as much as I wanted to. You know, it's a shame because there was plenty there to like in the movie. You know, it even addresses several of the issues people have with the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. You know, issue number one that it deals with, it had a very compelling, interesting, and unpredictable villain. Hey, shocker, I know, for a Marvel movie. Number two, someone of importance actually dies. So detractors of the MCU who feel the that the movies there lack any real stakes... You can't say that about Guardians of the Galaxy, even if the moment of the big death itself included a line of dialogue that totally sapped the power out of the moment for me, personally. Um, But yeah, all in all, you know, it's a thumbs up experience. I think in certain ways I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed the first one, believe it or not. Uh, at At least my theatrical experience was better. Um, I wasn't falling asleep this time around, which is always a huge plus. But um, yeah, you know, I laughed and I overall, I mean, the visuals were nuts. The visuals are absolutely bananas in this movie. 
And for me, it dwarfed like Doctor Strange by leaps and bounds, uh, just visually speaking, because I know Doctor Strange was supposed to be the big showcase for what the MCU can do visually. This just takes it to a whole other goddamn level. But um, overall, I give Guardians Volume 2 a very solid B, a very entertaining popcorn flick that could have been easily an A or A-plus experience if it wasn't so scared to share its real emotions with you and let you actually, you know, sink in, sink your teeth into that and enjoy all of the wonderful little things it has to say about life and family and fatherhood uh, instead of just you know, taking the piss out of the whole goddamn thing. But anyway, let's see. Outside of that, this week, what do we got? I I, uh, I I caught up on Better Call Saul, which I think continues to be one of the best shows on television. It's getting closer and closer to Breaking Bad in terms of the storyline and the timeline. And I really think the series is going to be a very unique spin uh, on TV mythologies and timelines in that, you know, it, it's my theory that these first few seasons will serve as a prequel, while the latter season or two will serve as a sequel. And what I mean is, you know, I think at some point, a season will end with a perfect setup for the start of Breaking Bad. And then, when Better Call Saul returns the following season, it'll take place in the present day with where Jimmy McGill currently is. Um, regardless, the show's great, and if you love Breaking Bad, I hope you're giving Better Call Saul a real chance. Uh, in terms of other entertainments I've consumed this week, um, unfortunately, I didn't get to any more movies other than Guardians. I just didn't have the time. And honestly, outside of Chuck, which I still plan on seeing, maybe taking my dad to see that because he's a huge Rocky Balboa fan, a huge Rocky fan, and I figure he may get a, a kick out of the movie that you know, seemingly tells the story of the real Rocky Balboa. Uh, I spoke about Chuck last week, but... Um, Outside of Chuck, there's really nothing out there that's calling me to the theaters. I'm still in kind of a holding pattern, probably until uh, Alien Covenant and then Blade Runner 2049 comes out in these next few weeks. I'm kind of in a holding pattern until those come out. Um, but I did start catching up on the third season, a uh, third and final season of HBO's The Leftovers, which I have like a total love-hate relationship with. And I always have. I mean, there are times I think it's really compelling storytelling. And there are times when I literally don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, my wife laughs because I'm, I'm prone to turning towards her with a straight face a few times per episode and saying, I don't know what this show is about, Kristen. Because <laughs> I, I, I sometimes I just really don't. I don't know what genre to consider it. I don't know what kind of story it's meant to be. I don't know who I should be pulling for. I just, a lot of times, The Leftovers leaves me scratching my head. So, look, I'm going to finish it because this is the third and final season. And I've already made it this far, so, you know, I kind of have to. But that show for me is just like a big what the fuck a lot of the times. So, here's hoping that the series finale really pays off. Um <laughs> Because it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to take a little time here to answer your El Fanboy questions. You sent in some questions after last week's episode. Um, so Tavo had an interesting one. You know, he, he wanted to know basically with regard to like the stakes of these, of these superhero films. You know, he asked, has anyone felt that, you know, most superhero movies are just too big in scope? 
because to him it makes them feel impersonal. And I mean, honestly, I've been saying this for a very long time, a very, very long time, that it, it's true that a lot of times these superhero films, they, they go way too big, way too fast, and they kind of level the playing field in an odd way. They kind of make it so that, you know, when everything is big, then nothing feels big. Whereas if you allow certain stories to be smaller and more self-contained and have the stakes be of more of a, of a personal sort of situation, then when you go big, it feels all the more monumental. You know, a Suicide Squad comes to mind when in terms of stories that just went way too big for no apparent reason. You know, Suicide Squad was a great, you know, the, the idea for it was great. You get all of these really rough around the edges, sort of villainous characters, this band of misfits together. To, and then you kind of have to like, you know, it's about the team dynamic and seeing how they're able to overcome a threat and almost inadvertently become good guys. You know, like that was such a neat novel little story premise or a, a way into telling a story. And then they go and they make the whole thing with a big fucking portal of and trying to destroy the world practically and it, it looked like a fucking chitauri invasion and it's like why would you go that big and p basically put the world in peril if you've already revealed that there are super beings in this world and why would they allow the suicide squad to basically take on this threat on their own you know, it just, it made it too big. It got overblown. It became less about the interesting characters and their dynamics and more about just like a generic third act finale for a movie. Even director, writer David Ayer has admitted as much that he, that was a, that was a mistake. That was a mistake that he should have kept it smaller. He should have made, I think he said that he should have made the Joker the primary villain, which coincidentally, I said right off the bat, if you guys have been following me for a while, when I was covering that movie when it came out last year, I said that they should have found a way to make the Joker the primary villain and kept it more of a personal thing, where Harley Quinn is like the emotional center of the movie and everyone bands together around her and the Joker is this unpredictable, anarchic, destructive force. And it just would have been a much more interesting movie instead of just having them fight these big, you know, Blackberry-looking things. Uh, it was just, you know, impersonal and stupid. Whereas on the opposite end, you've got Logan, which for me is a hallmark uh, superhero film, comic book film, where the stakes were kept very, very localized. It was very, very much about Logan and his personal quest for redemption and his relationship with his daughter and trying to get her to safety. And meanwhile, the stakes couldn't have felt bigger in your heart when you're sitting there watching it because it was so much more intimate, so much more personal, so much more like it just it's amazing to me that a movie about a guy trying to find redemption and get his daughter across the border felt more like there was so much more at stake than a world than a movie like Suicide Squad, where the entire world could come to an end if these guys don't stop uh, Enchantress from doing what she's doing. So I do think, and I, and I said the same thing also about Iron Man 3, that they made it way too fucking big, way too big in terms of you have the president of the United States getting, you know, Air Force One attacked. You have this huge aerial assault that's happening over the United States of America. There's this huge fucking huge, massive story, 
massive, massive story. And it made no sense then that Iron Man would be dealing with it on his own. And it just became overblown with him and all of the empty suits fighting. The It just, it, it, it you know, they took it too big. Had they kept it small, had they kept it more about the rivalry between him and I don't even remember his fucking name anymore. It's it's been a couple of years and I never rewatched the movie. But him and Guy Pierce's character had it been more about that intimate feud between them and Iron and and Tony Stark wanting to atone for for accidentally creating this guy through his own you know mistakes and his own ego. You know, then it would have made the Ultron thing even bigger when Age of Ultron happened. You know, because that's another one where he kind of had to atone and it's like Tony's prior mistakes or Tony's ego getting the better of him. And it would have made the Ultron threat seem all the more painstaking and, and, and horrible and real and understandable. Iron Man 3, on the other hand, like they made the stakes really big where the fucking leader of the free world might die. And you're wondering, where's S.H.I.E.L.D.? Where are the rest of the Avengers while this gigantic thing is happening? Like, it makes no goddamn sense. So, uh, Tavo, in short, I agree with you. I do tend to find that the, 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 the superhero movies make the scope way too huge. And it does have this inverse effect of it becomes so overblown that you actually care less. Because you relate less. Um... So, yes, that was one question you guys sent me. Uh, Aaron sent in a two-parter. Uh, one part I can answer very easily. The other one I'm not so sure about. He asked, um, do the multiple Wonder Woman trailers give too much of the plot and action away? So let's deal with that one first. Uh, honestly, I don't think so. I don't think, you know, compared to what we... like, They're right on par with what we've seen, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of trailers nowadays, they give away the whole goddamn movie from start to finish. And I don't think Wonder Woman is any more or any less guilty than your average movie trailer nowadays. It seems nowadays that the only films that ever get trailers that don't spoil the whole goddamn thing are the Star Wars movies. The Star Wars movies tend to know that, hey, listen, the audience is going to be there. All we got to do is throw some iconic imagery at them, which will get cut in the theatrical cut. But all we got to do is throw some iconic imagery at them, give them some John Williams-esque music, and flash that Star Wars logo at the end, and people will fucking be there. So... Um, yeah, they're really like the only major motion picture franchise nowadays that doesn't give you a lot to work with because they know that they're going to get you anyway. Uh, so Wonder Woman's trailers for me are right on par with the kind of stuff we, we see in most modern day trailers and way less spoilery than the last time, uh, Batman, uh, Batman, the last time that the DCEU was promoting one of their blockbusters, you know, uh. I mean, it wasn't the second to last time. Remember when uh, Batman v Superman came out and Trailer 3 debuted and it gave away the entire goddamn movie? Remember that one? Or maybe it was Trailer 2 that showed Doomsday, that showed basically that one summarized the entire movie, including any and all surprises in one trailer. Um, so it's, it's definitely not as guilty as that one, but it's right on par with what we're used to. You know, what we're used to these days, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, Wonder Woman is right in that bell curve there in terms of, you know, giving away spoilers or, or giving away, quote unquote, too much of the plot. But also, 
I think in this particular case, I mean, what, what do you really expect to happen, Aaron? What does anyone expect to happen in these kinds of movies? And I'm not saying that to be derisive or sarcastic towards you or anyone in particular, but what I'm trying to get to now is we know the plots of a lot of these movies. And as I've been saying for a long time, the plot and the originality of the plot is very overrated. And to me, this is just an extension of that. So I'm not going to beat a dead horse. You can listen to previous episodes of this podcast um, to find out why I think that plot is overrated. But this does relate to that. Because what's going to happen? What's going to happen in this movie? You you know what's going to happen way before you ever saw a trailer. You know what? We're going to meet our hero. We're going to see them sort of come into their own and either get their powers or learn how to use their powers. We're going to meet their supporting characters. We're going to see them come toe-to-toe with the whatever the big threat is. In the initial confrontation, the big threat is going to get the upper hand. And then in the third act, our hero is going to get the upper hand and we're going to end on a very exciting note and on a note that sets you up for sequels. That's, that, that, that is the, the, the skeleton of every one of these fucking movies. And that's not a bad thing. They, yes, they have a formula. There is a formula. There are classic story arcs that have been used time and time again for hundreds of not, if not thousands of movies at this point. So at this point, we all know what's going to happen. It's all about will the execution be good enough to make the ride worth it? That, at the end of the day, is what it comes down to. That is why some of the most beloved movies of all time and most beloved movies of these last few years where everyone seems to have a goddamn opinion and everyone thinks they're a critic, even the movies that those kind of people love, the real snarky internet blogger types, kind of like me, um, even even those movies, if you really distill them down, there's nothing particularly interesting or unpredictable about the plots. It's just about the execution. So Aaron and anyone else out there who's worried about the Wonder Woman trailers, or any trailers for that matter, giving away too much of the movie, listen, you already know everything about the goddamn movie, so don't worry about the trailers. Just if you're, if you're, if, if you're interested in it, go see it, and then judge for yourself whether or not the director of the movie, the writers of the movie, were able to execute the, this ho-hum plot in a way that really captures your imagination. Um, as for the second question that Aaron asked, uh, he wanted to know, you know, how I feel about, you know, like what impact do I think the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 will have on the greater MCU? Um, see, I, I, I'm more, I'm more in the mood to answer things on a more, from a roots level, from a filmmaking level. Uh, I'm not sure, Aaron, if you're more interested in what for what in like how it'll affect things in a storyline level. That I really don't know. As far as I'm concerned, this movie felt very much on an island, very much on its own thing. There were I was actually surprised how few connections there were to what's going on, considering you know going on on Earth, considering the fact that Infinity War is is rapidly approaching. I thought this was going to have some sort of major setup. Uh, or major addition to the the way the Infinity Gauntlet is coming together and all that. So I was actually fairly surprised at how on its own this movie was. Um, But, you know, this is where being a comic book junkie, I'm sure, would help me. 
because maybe there's stuff in there that I don't realize is going to be connected to the terrestrial films uh, that that yeah, maybe, maybe just they're going to be more connected than I realize. Like, I don't know anything about... See, the reason I'm sort of stumbling over my words here is I'm trying to avoid including a spoiler. So yeah, I guess I'll just go vague because I do want to save all the spoiler discussion for next week. Um, you know, there's a thing there in one of the post credit sequences that I don't know if it's setting up... It, it, it introduces a character, to be more specific. It introduces the idea for a character that I don't know if that should make me feel like, oh, wow, that character is really important to the Infinity War. So here's an interesting link. Or is that character just going to be someone that the Guardians have to deal with in Volume 3? You know what I mean? So if I'm sure if I were a comic book guy, I'd be able to point more in like what I think the storyline connections are going to be. But for me, what I want to say is uh, the impact I think the movie will have on the MCU is hopefully Feige and company see the success of this movie and they have more faith in telling self-contained stories. Um, Because for me, it's one of the things that I enjoyed about Guardians of the Galaxy is it didn't feel like I had to have seen every Marvel movie that's come out in order to know what's going on. And it didn't feel like like hamstrung and attached at the hip to all these other Marvel movies. And if Marvel can find a way to allow these films to stand on their own a little more... I think that would be a great takeaway from the success of Guardians of the Galaxy. I would love that. And for better or worse, even though I do think that he was a little too softball with it, you can't argue that James Gunn didn't get to make his movie his way. This was definitely his baby. And, you know, in an age where Marvel seems very, very hell-bent on having full creative control over what's going on in every step of the way... You can tell that James Gunn was given some some degree of freedom here, probably due in large part to the fact that, you know, these characters and this storyline does take place so far away uh, from everything else that's going on here on Earth in terms of the MCU. So if they could start finding a way to like if they could find that balance where they could allow the directors to really make their own interesting movie um, while still having it connected to the greater world i think that would be great um but i don't know if they could even do that at this point i don't know like it's going to take some work because so many of these first few phases of movies have been about showing how connected everything is how interwoven all these storylines are so yeah it's going to be tough for them to be able to sort of give each thing some distance and give each thing its proper due um, cause you know, then you do wind up in, in situations like Iron Man three, which I mentioned earlier, where it's like, we know that all these people are all interconnected. Why is nobody helping Tony Stark out? You know? So I think one of the secrets here, and it kind of ties into what Davo brought up 
is if Marvel starts making the stories more personal, more just about that particular hero's journey and quest with its own beginning, middle, and end that has little or nothing to do with the rest of what's going on, I think we can. We, I think we could continue to get really interesting movies out of the MCU. So that's kind of what I hope the big takeaway is from the success of Guardians. That like, look how much people spark to these movies that are unique and interesting and tell their own story. Um, I just hope that that's what they take away from it. Uh, another question that was asked also by Tavo actually was about. Uh, he asked me just late last night. Uh, last night about Doug Lyman. So, you know, Doug Lyman at one point was going going to be directing Gambit uh, for Fox. He was going to do Gambit, which is going to be part of the X-Men Cinematic Universe. And then he's not doing it anymore. So before I get to Thabo's question, let me also just kind of include a bit of news here. Uh, he recently sort of announced or clarified why he's not going to be making Gambit anymore. Um, so here's what he said. He said, I never formed a connection. You know, many of these movies, I, I don't have the connection on day one, but I find the connection. I just never found it. I don't always find a connection. I, I want to make a movie that if anyone else, if anybody else made it, it would be different. When I went to make Swingers, I showed the script to a friend of mine and she said, why would you want to make this movie? The Trent character, who was played by Vince Vaughn, is totally unlikable. I was like, oh my God, I love Trent. That's the reason I'm making this movie. She was like, you're crazy. He's totally unlikable. And then I made the movie and she saw the movie and she was like, you're right. He is likable. And then I went to make Go. And I showed the script to the same friend and she said, I don't know why you'd make this movie. Nobody in this film is likable. Right in that moment, it clicked. I was like, I get it. I need to make Go for the same reason that I needed to make Swingers. Somebody else making Swingers might have made Vince Vaughn's character into an asshole and been, judge and been judgmental about him. My specific take on that character is what the audience then took away. So I knew that I needed to make Go because my version of Go celebrated these characters instead of being judgmental of them. I knew that everybody would like those characters because I liked them. So it looks like, you know, he he was he was working on Gambit for a while and he just never kind of got it to a place where he he could relate or he could see where his unique voice would make a difference. I guess to him, the way Gambit was shaping up at the time that he was attached to it, it was shaping up to be just a sort of generic sort of story that anyone could do. And he wasn't feeling that personal connection. So, listen, I can I can totally understand that. And I appreciate why he would say that. You know, I'm always the first one to say that these filmmakers should be able to put their own stamp on things. Um, you know, and I, I get it. So, anyway, so Davo had asked me about Mr. Lyman. And he said, well, you know, since he's not doing Gambit, uh, what about Doug Lyman for Suicide Squad 2? Um, here's the thing. For me, for, for the Suicide Squad sequel and any and all Suicide Squad movies coming beyond this point, I think someone with a knack for comedy is important. Not because I want the movies to be comedic, but because I think a sort of off-kilter sense of humor 
would really benefit the uh, you know that whole franchise. And I mean, I, you know, it would benefit the entire DCEU, but Suicide Squad in particular. I think a really good sort of sense of like mature off kilter humor. I think is is perfect for that. That's why I'm still all about uh, Ruben Fleischer, the guy who did Zombieland, uh, doing Suicide Squad too. For me, Lyman. I mean, I, I love his work. I've been um, I've been a Lyman fan for for several years now. Um, uh, sorry, I um, yeah, I like his work, but I just I, I don't really see him for for Suicide Squad. Uh, so, you know, a noble idea, but Davo also, I, I don't think you've realized this, that Lyman is already working in the DCEU. He's already developing and directing, as far as, you know, the current plans go, a Justice League Dark movie. So you're going to get Lyman in the DC world, but I just don't think Suicide Squad 2 would be the best proper way to start with that. You know what I mean? But all right, so that, that handles this week's El Fanboy questions that you guys sent to me. Uh, and I also like to like take a moment to thank everyone who's taken the time to review the podcast over on iTunes. I got a hilarious review last week that I would like to read with all of you. Um, first of all, it's another five-star review. So El Fanboy podcast can ha- up to this point still has a stellar five-star review. So... Uh, Please continue to keep the reviews pouring in, and I will read them on the air because they are awesome, especially when they're create they're creative like this one. So the uh, the headline is very distracting. That's what it says. And here's the body of the review. I thought this was going to be a podcast about Mario Lopez, so I was very confused at first. After that was done, I started to get into it, and now I'm ready to commit my life to the listening of these podcasts every day on repeat until until MFR ascends to his rightful position as President of the United States of America and America's next top model. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Brown Herring. I know you're just fucking with me, but you still gave me a five-star review, and I take it you like the show. So thanks for taking the time to uh, jot down a few nice words. Um, and please, everyone and anyone listening, if you can run over to iTunes and do the same, that would be fucking awesome. But all right, everyone, now we're going to get into current events, starting with the box office. This week saw the debut, obviously, of... Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and to the shock of no one, Guardians of the Galaxy took the weekend by a huge margin. It uh, The weekend actuals come in at $146 million, 510104 So that is a lot of fucking money. 146.5 mil for its opening weekend. That's just over double what the first movie did. Uh, that's followed immediately by The Fate of the Furious. Uh, the Universal Juggernaut uh, pulled in $8.5 million, so that's a very, very, very distant second place. Uh, its total gross at this point domestically is $207 bucks. But remember, the big story with Fate of the Furious is its international market, where it currently now sits at $1.1 
billion fucking dollars. So there you go with Fate of the Furious, which now brings us to the third on this week's top five, which goes to the Boss Baby. The Boss Baby came in at 5.9 million bucks. So we can just call it six. It got six million dollars in its sixth frame. Uh, the current domestic haul for that is 156 million bucks. I'm sure that Fox is quite happy with how that one's doing. Meanwhile, last week's sort of sleeper indie that came out was uh, How to Be a Latin Lover, which is uh, actually my autobiography. Uh, it made 5.1 million bucks. Not bad for a little indie film, uh, with which now has a total gross, domestically speaking, of $20 million. I mean, this movie could not have cost much to make. And you got to imagine it's going to have some legs overseas when it starts opening in Latin markets. So far, it's only opened here. So that movie's going to do very nicely for its studio. And then now dipping back into the top five after dropping out. You don't see that very often. Where a movie that exits the top five suddenly returns the following week. But yes, Beauty and the Beast is back in our top five after dropping out last week into sixth place. Now it made another five million bucks for, are you ready for this? It's worldwide haul is also, it's 1.1, almost 1.2 billion dollars. So that is fucking bananas. I think it's, uh, it's something like the highest grossing PG movie of all time now. It passed, uh, it passed Finding Dory. Finding Dory. Uh, let's see, that one had been at $486.3 million, domestically speaking. And with uh, with this weekend's haul, you know, the, the, the domestic total is now 487.7 mil. So it just it just squeaked past Finding Dory. The other the other names on that top five list of uh, you know all-time domestic grocers, PG movies. Are you know Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, Shrek Two was also on that list with four hundred four hundred forty one point two million dollars. So, Beauty and the Beast now tops all the PG domestic open domestic halls ever. So, congrats over there to Disney. They've uh, they've got some sort of winning formula, and God damn, they are doing well with it. And while we're talking about winning formulas, I mean, let's circle back to Guardians for a second, shall we? I mean, I'm still blown away at what Marvel's done with that franchise. You know, it's a fucking franchise about a talking raccoon. You got a giant tree guy in it. None of these characters are household names. None of these characters have legions upon legions of fans, like some of the most iconic heroes of all time. And I mean, just to kind of put into perspective, it still, it, it fucking throws me for a loop that the first Guardians of the Galaxy, because remember, you can claim that this one, the success was a little more expected because of what, you know, the fact that it's a follow-up and people have had a few years to, to get to know and love uh, this Guardians team in the last three years since the first one came out. But let's think about that first one for a second, when they were still an unknown commodity, okay? That first Guardians of the Galaxy made $105 million more than the last standalone Superman movie, okay? It made, a, it, it made 105 million bucks more than Man of Steel did. That, I can't fucking fathom that. 
Superman, one of the most household names and, and ideas ever. And Guardians of the Galaxy beat it. And meanwhile, it, you know, while we're still in that realm, of con- like comparing it to DC things, like it may, it, it's only a hundred mil shy of what Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice made. Meanwhile, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice cost like way more to make. It had Batman in it. It had Superman in it. It had Wonder Woman in it. It had. It was the foundation for a whole new Justice League franchise that they were, you know, DC was going to bring to the world. It had all this shit going for it. Meanwhile, Guardians was pretty much almost exactly a hundred million dollars less, uh, which is just like the fact that it's even in that vicinity. It's amazing to me that the Guardians are where they're at. It's unbelievable. And, you know, and uh, just to be fair, too, so you don't think I'm I'm just unfairly comparing the DC movies to Guardians. I mean, the first Guardians movie even outperformed and totally just mopped the floor, really, with like most of Marvel's two, you know, the, the first two phases of Marvel's movies. Yeah, anything that wasn't Avengers or Iron Man, Guardians dwarfed that. And it's just amazing to me. It's just amazing to me that this obscure, weird, quirky, wacky team with no real installed fan base has become what it's become. So, you know, they've tapped into into something very special there. I'm really glad that James Gunn will be back for a volume three. And I can't see where they go. I can't wait to see where they go from here. Even though I, I hope, I you know, I do think that the movies could be better and more emotionally resonant than uh, than Gunn and the people at Marvel Studios have allowed them to be. I still find the whole prospect of the Guardians very exciting, and it's a whole interesting avenue of storytelling for the MCU. So good for them on a, a very, very impressive first weekend. Now it's time for the headline. It's going to touch on several of the top stories that are currently overtaking the net, including Hellboy, who's coming back for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, who just signed on to join the Avatar sequels, Jeff Goldblum, James Bond, and more. So, the, uh, the big story that's, that's got everybody talking this morning is the fact that there's going to be a third Hellboy movie. Finally! Hooray! But wait, but wait, it is not that third Hellboy movie. It's not the third Hellboy movie that many of us had been hoping for, which would find Ron Perlman reuniting with Guillermo del Toro to make a proper follow-up to the first two films that they already made in that canon. No, no, no. What we are getting is a reboot, people, a reboot. That's right, they're going back to the drawing board for what they're describing as a hard R-rated reboot of the Hellboy franchise. Now, um, a couple things, a couple things. Uh, I, I know that the initial response to this news is kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I, I want, I, I'm getting the sense that people are groaning and bitching about it because they were hoping for a true sequel. Uh, you know, Ron Perlman has been very vocal about trying to get that third movie made. And on the one hand, I totally agree with him that, you know, he put it in the terms about a year or two ago. He said something about how, you know, I think we earned it. You know, he was he was referring to it in those terms because, you know, 
In terms of the box office returns, in terms of the critical response, you know, people enjoyed those first two movies. So in a way, you know, they earned a third movie. And that's something that's, that, that doesn't get discussed often enough, not just with Hellboy, but in general. You know, we live in a sequel universe, right? Everything is about sequels and sequels and follow-ups and spin-offs and sequels and prequels. And it's like, how often do, do the movies actually deserve a sequel? And it's not just part of some grander plan. And when you think of it in those terms, you know, Del Toro and, and Perlman really did earn a third movie, especially because like they, they, they didn't cost a hell of a lot to make. And there is an audience for them. And the people who did see them liked them. And they always made the studio money. So in those very, very basic terms, yes, they definitely earned a third movie. So it's a total bummer. But you know what? I'm having a hard time being upset about this. Um, because right off the bat, they're starting us off with a great actor in the lead role. Uh because it's funny, like, my feelings on this news uh, begin and die with the headline. The beginning of the headline that I read, which was at Variety, said that a uh, new Hellboy movie in the works, I groaned. Which is followed immediately by Stranger Things actor David Harbour in Talks to Star. And all of a sudden I go, hang on a second. David Harbour, I think, is an inspired bit of casting. I instantly saw it. You know casting is good when you don't have to use your imagination. Like, I instantly saw David Harbour. As soon as I, I pictured him in Stranger Things as the sort of disgruntled sheriff punching people across the face whenever something wasn't going his way, just kind of like a big, dumb, lovable brute, I'm like, there it is. There's Hellboy. So um, right off the bat, they won me over because of David Harbour. And there is this little simple fact that, like, as much as we like those first two movies, they weren't necessarily uh, all that faithful to the books. You know, the, the books had a lot more, you know, they, they were decidedly darker and weirder. And, you know, they were, like, very offbeat books. And the Hollywood movies, you know, the, the ones Del Toro made, you know, they, they were a little more fluffy, a little bit more... Uh, Hollywoodized, you know, and they came out before the current comic book superhero boom. So I do kind of feel like if they go in a more in, in a direction that's closer to the books, uh, has that hard R rating that Hellboy really does deserve, and is almost like the Deadpool or the Logan of the Hellboy universe. Uh, I can totally see why that would be an area worth re-exploring. Um, by the way, I don't know if you guys have continued to follow, but more news has come uh, since last night and this morning when news broke. Right now, it looks like the film has a working title, which is Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen. And they, uh, the script is being worked on by Andrew Cosb, Christopher Golden, and uh, the guy who gave us Hellboy to begin with, Mike Magnola. That's a big fucking deal. All right, that is a big, big fucking deal. You shouldn't be sleeping on that. You know, author Mike Magnola is part of the scripting for this movie. So that tells me that this is actually going to be, this has the potential to be a very, very interesting movie. Something that'll be closer to the books 
and maybe kind of be a little more shocking and a little bit more unique. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. You know, my initial thing, eh, and then instantly, as soon as I heard David Harbour and some of the creative people involved, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give this a chance. And I kind of think you guys should too. Um, now, of course, okay. Do I think that it would be nice if the studio started focusing more on, on getting characters that they screwed up on in the past or characters that have never been shown before? Sure. But you know what? Hellboy, I think, was a very interesting premise and the universe of characters that are involved there. So I wouldn't mind revisiting that world with people who were going to be a little more faithful and be a little weirder and darker um, than what we saw before. So come on, guys. Let's give Hellboy uh, Rise of the Blood Queen a chance before we all go off a fucking bridge. Um with regard to uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which, of course, now everyone in the ADD world that we live in, everyone's already looking at the sequel. The, the first movie came out not even four days ago, and everyone's already talking about Part 3 because we all need instant gratification. Um, so a couple things. Uh, for those of you who liked the character Aisha, who was a member of the Sovereign uh, she was, you know, the, the, the gold lady, the main gold woman. Um, it looks like she will be back. Uh, James Gunn has has revealed that she is going to be back in part three. There's a quote. He said, I absolutely plan on bringing Elizabeth Debicki back. That's the woman who played Aisha. She's actually one of my favorite actors I've ever worked with, he said. Um, and he also threw uh, some nice, some nice uh, praise on Pom Clementif, who played Mantis, and Chris Sullivan, who played Taserface. Uh, by the way, I don't know if this makes me fucking weird, but I totally had the hots for Mantis in this movie. I don't care how strange they made her look, and how many times Drax said that she was uh, unattractive or ugly. I thought Mantis was kind of hot. I got to be totally honest. But anyway, so, um, yes, uh, for those of you who are curious where they're going with all this, and especially if you were paying attention to the Easter eggs there, it looks like they are going to be exploring uh, Aisha and the Sovereign a little more. So there's some confirmation from James Gunn on that. Um, while we're on the subject of, you know, intergalactic Marvel movies, the other big one, of course, is Thor Ragnarok. And, you know, there are some recent comments from Jeff Goldblum that I think will give, uh, give people some pause, give people something to be excited about, because, you know, I know that there are many people who agree with me that the Marvel mo movies have become a little too, like, corporate and a little too square and a little too overly handled to the point where they feel sterile in certain ways. And according to Goldblum... Uh, Taika Waititi, who I, you know, if I if I had a dollar every time I said his name on this podcast, I'd be fucking rich. I feel like I talk about this guy every week. But you know what? I have a reason to, because Jeff Goldblum says that the director actually was very, very collaborative with him and had some gave him some interesting leeway in creating his version of the Grand Master, who's that character we know from the Planet Hulk books who's now going to factor into Thor Ragnarok as they sort of merge those storylines. Um, here's what Goldblum told Entertainment Weekly. He said, uh, when we... No, I'm not going to do a Goldblum impression because that's just... It's just not a good idea. He said, when we first talked, 
he said, I want you to do your particular version of this character without being comic-y or grandiloquent. I think you should do something that's in your creative family tree and also improvise. He was very interested in improvisation. We came to all those scenes and riffed enjoyably for the time we had. I don't know what's going to make make it. <clears throat> I don't know what's going to come out in the mix because we gave him a whole bunch of different choices. I'll tell you that he's great. Taika Waititi gets ten Goldblums out of a possible ten Goldblums. So uh, it sounds like the actor is very very pleased with uh, the working environment that Waititi uh, instilled on that set. And it's interesting to hear that they would allow some improvisation and kind of loosen things up and kind of basically invite Goldblum to just be Goldblum. And you know what? That's going to add, I think it's going to add some interesting sparks to that movie. And I think it's one of the reasons that movie, you know, while maybe not initially, I think it should be on everyone's radar. I think it has the potential to be a very, very special flick. Um, And while we're talking about Mr. Goldblum, uh, there was also another big bit of news that recently came out that his character will be returning for Jurassic World 2. Um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. You know, he was a fan favorite character, and a lot of people were a little thrown off by the fact that very few characters actually returned when Jurassic World came back a few years a few years ago. Um and now that he's in there, you know, it, it gives it gives fans of the original Jurassic Park movies something to really look forward to, to kind of see where, where Malcolm is these days. So here's what he had to say about working on Jurassic World 2. He said, even though some might say it's pop corny uh, entertainment, top notch, of course, in our conversation, uh, J.A. Bayona, the director, was very focused on the serious issues of greed, as it oftentimes comes up in those movies, and the marvels of science and reason, and the very fascinating point at which our species finds itself, both in real life and in this imaginary world, too. I'm very interested in that myself, so I'm looking forward to this. I've got a few things to do. Uh, I'm nothing if not conscientious, so I'm enjoying working on it every day. Uh, What a perfectly Jeff Goldblum answer that was. Um, But yeah, you know what? I've been saying this for a while. When I first uh, reported on the news that Bayona was taking on the director's chair from Colin Trevorrow for Jurassic World 2... I said that's going to be uh, an important move because for me, Colin uh, Colin Trevorrow turned in a reboot that was pretty much a remake of the first movie. It felt very safe. It added very little to the actual mythology. They didn't have much of anything interesting to say. And to me, like, you know, a lot of people were excited about Jurassic World. I think they, I, I, I personally think a lot of that had to do with nostalgia and not about the quality of the movie itself. Um, so hearing that Bayona, who comes from the indie world and, and seems to be more interested in some of the more dark, some of the more human elements of the story and how the story can be a, a metaphor, can be a, a magnifying lens onto humanity as a whole and onto our current society and where we're at with science and what the future could hold. I think it's, you know, I I think he has the potential to make Jurassic World 2 everything that Jurassic World 1 wasn't. 
And judging by Goldblum's comments here, I think that sounds like it's where he's going. You know, he really wants to explore some interesting stuff. And it's also rather fitting that he, you know, that he pushed to get uh, Goldblum back because his character asks a very important question if you're trying to tell this type of story. You know, he has that famous line, that often cited, quoted famous line where he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And, you know, right now I feel like where we are in 2017, there's a lot of stuff that's getting worked on and a lot of breakthroughs that we're on the cusp of that it's like, yes, okay, we can do this now, but should we? So I think, uh, I think, you know, having Malcolm back in, I think Bayona being at the helm, trying to tell a more interesting metaphorical story, a more allegorical story. I think this all bodes very, very well, very, very well for Jurassic World, um, too. Uh, moving right along. There's also the, some more casting news to share with you. Uh, Mr. Cliff Curtis from Fear the Walking Dead, has signed on to appear in all of the upcoming Avatar sequels. Uh, his character is reportedly going to be named Tonawari, and he is described as the leader of the Metkayina, the Reef People clan. Uh, I don't have a hell of a lot to say about this, but you know what? I think that's great casting because to me, Cliff Curtis is already looks like an alien. His face is so unique. He can be from anywhere. Have you guys noticed that? That he's from like New Zealand and he plays anything. I've seen him play Middle Eastern people. I've seen him play Latinos. Remember in Training Day, he was one of the like gangbanger vato types in the famous scene with like, you want to get your shit bushed in? Um, I mean, he didn't, he's not the one who said the line, but he was in that famous scene. If you want to picture him, he can be from anywhere. So for me, having him play a sort of extraterrestrial character, I'm like, yeah, that works. Cause the guy, he's got this otherworldly thing about him and he, you know, he's, he's a bit of a, a chameleon as an actor. So good for him. I'm happy to hear that Cliff Curtis is going to be in uh, James Cameron's avatar sequels. Um, up next on the docket for things I want to discuss with you is the fact that we've got some very exciting trailers to mull over, everyone. There were some trailers this week that I think totally upped my hype for, for certain movies to, to a level where they had not been previously. So the first one I want to touch on is Wonder Woman. Look, um, the Wonder Woman trailer looked damn good. Um... You know, sorry about last week. I was a little overly harsh on it, I think. That 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 60-second trailer that came out, um, I think I was too harsh on it. Partially because the places that were that were sharing it, you know, the headlines were that this was a new trailer. And all it ended up being was stuff we'd seen before, which, you know, that that sort of thing is typically a warning sign. It typically means that if the studio just, if, if for all the trailers, all they're basically doing is recutting and reusing the same key scenes, that means they're not proud of the movie that they're selling and they don't think enough of it is good enough to show you. Because there's, they, they just keep going to the same joke beats, the same plot line beats. So, you know, had that been the actual final trailer for Wonder Woman, that would have been a huge cause for concern. So that's where I was coming from last week when I sort of shit all over it. But as it turns out, that was wrong. 
That clip last week was not the final trailer. This week, the real final Wonder Woman trailer came out, and I loved just about everything about it. Um, To me, it had a great balance between epic emotional storytelling. You had some levity in there. You had some interesting themes that you'd like to see played out. Um, you know, visually it looks very stunning. It looks like Patty Jenkins has turned in a very, very interesting, uh, you know, visually compelling film. Um, Gal Gadot, I think looks awesome as Wonder Woman. You know, am I still a little worried about her, you know, having like a standout moment in the movie where it's not just about being beautiful and strong looking, you know, they, they haven't really, she hasn't really been given a chance to show a lot of her range. So I hope we get to see some more of her range in this movie, but I think she looks phenomenal as Diana Prince as wonder woman, which by the way, was kind of cool that they have, uh, you know, Trevor, uh, Chris Pine's character basically come up with her alias. Uh, you see that happen in the trailer. I, I, I kind of got a kick out of that, but, um, yeah, I thought the trailer was very, very well made, very well done. I don't think it revealed too much. And now I'm actually a little more interested because it looks like there might be a little more to this than what the initial trailers had shown. Um, also, I put up a poll last week on the El Fanboy Podcast Twitter. I asked you guys about whether or not uh, Wonder Woman was a must-see for you or if you're going to wait till you, till the reviews come out first. And, you know, the overwhelming response was that it is a must-see no matter what anyone says. Um, And look, you know, while I'm still in the other category, I'm in the let-me-see-the-reviews side of things, let's be real, I'm going to end up seeing this no matter what. So, you know, while I can talk the talk, when it comes to DC, it's hard for me to walk the walk. There was a time when I, the most ardent Superman fan ever, was going to skip Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice because I was just so put off by everything uh, involved with the movie. And for Christ's sake, you know, I still ended up seeing the damn thing. <laughs> you know, Kelvin got me to got me to go see it, and it really didn't take much for him to convince me. You know, he uh, he he PayPal'd me like twelve bucks to cover the ticket because he wanted me to review it for the site, and that's all it took. Twelve dollars purchased my soul, and this movie that I was not going to go see out of principle as some sort of protest vote, um, I still ended up going to go see it. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, all I want is for the DCEU to succeed. It's true. It's true. And uh, that's just kind of what I got to say about that. And so the Wonder Woman trailer came out, and I'm I'm definitely interested, and I'm going to go see that fucking movie. I, I hope it doesn't let me down. But that wasn't the only new trailer this week. We also got new trailers for Dunkirk as well as Blade Runner. Um, so first of all, I got to say Dunkirk looks fantastic. Jesus Christ. That, that trailer was like the perfect logical progression for the marketing campaign for that movie. You know, like, cause like while the initial, the, the initial trailer was heavy on like just ominous imagery and stoic performances, you know, this one illuminated why this is a story that needed to be told. 
You know, it was gripping, it was fascinating, and it had that signature sense of Nolan heft that he's able to put into these films. And good for him, too, because, you know, the film is doing very well in, in social media awareness, which is something I've been paying attention to because, you know, in an age where where unless you're a, a, a blockbuster or a comic book movie, it's hard for you to get your fair share of attention. It's a big deal that a movie like this, a movie made for grownups with mature sensibilities, a historical drama, to be on the radar of this many people is great news. And the reason I keep you know referencing you know this many people is a report came out on Variety that Dunkirk you know, um, a few, it currently tops social media buzz with that new trailer. Um, yeah, that's a big deal right now. Dunkirk has generated more than 808,000 new conversations in social media. And for a movie that comes out next July, you know, the fact that people are already talking about it this much, um, you know, it's, it's pretty huge. And in the same article, by the way, they mentioned that Warner brothers, wonder woman, which we just spoke about, produced 28,000 new conversations last week in the wake of uh, releasing its uh, it, the new images that it did uh, during Gotham. So right now, people are talking a lot about Dunkirk, and I think that bodes well for the movie. It bodes well for, for filmmakers out there who feel like, unless I make a fucking comic book, comic book movie or make a, uh, a Fast and the Furious sequel, no one's going to go see my movies. And right now, that doesn't seem to be the case with Dunkirk. People are excited, and, and it's, it's garnering buzz the old-fashioned way. It's garnering buzz not because it's attached to a video game, a comic book, a movie. It's not a sequel. It's not a reboot. It's not a prequel. It's just a fascinating story uh, that needs to be told, being made by a very, very gifted filmmaker, and that is actually resonating with people, with audiences. So you know what? I really hope Dunkirk lives up to the hype, and I hope it does well, because I want more movies like that, more creativity, more stories that are that just need to be told and not just being told as part of a, an assembly product line from a studio. Um, the other trailer that came out this week that, that is worth discussing is the one for Blade Runner 2049. Um, guys, there's nothing I don't already love about this movie's prospects. It's tra- that trailer, I it had my jaw on the floor. I thought it looked phenomenal. Uh, I feel like the cinematography is going to be second to none. I think it's going to be a visual masterpiece. And, you know, just down the line, you know, the cast is impeccable. The director, Denis Villeneuve, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the best all-around up-and-coming filmmakers that are that, that are out there. I think he's destined for huge things in the future, much the same way as Christopher Nolan was when he first burst onto the scene. You know, in my eyes, he's done very little wrong. He's done a lot of things incredibly well. Between Sicario and Arrival and now what I've seen so far of Blade Runner 2049, I am the fucking president of the Denis Villeneuve fan club. And then when you add in the fact that you got Ryan Gosling and Jared Leto and you got Harrison Ford returning, and it just looks fucking unbelievable. So 
Uh, I can't wait till that comes out. And the funny thing is, full disclosure, I don't have this huge affinity for the first Blade Runner. Not because I don't like it. I just, I saw it once and I, it wasn't like in the best setting. You know, I didn't see it in a theater because I'm too young to have seen it in theaters and I didn't go whenever it got re-released, if it's even been re-released. But, um, you know, like I saw it on like a TV in a living room where other people were talking and it wasn't really like, and we're talking like maybe, I don't know, 13 years ago. It was like not really an ideal uh, setting for me to watch a seminal sci-fi epic like Blade Runner. So I enjoyed it, but I didn't really walk away with that sense of like awe uh, that a lot of Blade Runner fans seem to have. And meanwhile, even despite that, I can't wait to see Blade Runner 2049. So that, that, that just goes to show you how good the marketing for this movie has been and how I just I, I can't say enough about where my hype currently is for Blade Runner 2049. Um, something else that came up this week, which I found kind of interesting was that people asked, uh, Batista since he's out there promoting guardians of the galaxy, but he was also in the last, um, James Bond movie. He was inspector. Uh, <laughs> he was inspector. Uh, he, uh, they asked him who he thought should play James Bond. Uh, you know, cause we know that Craig's run, Daniel Craig's run is going to be ending soon. You know, people thought it was going to end with the last one. It looks like they may wrangle him in for this next one now, but we know that within, you know, after this, it's definitely the end of the line for Craig. So someone asked Batista, uh, about who he thinks should replace. And here's what Batista said. He said, it's really hard for me to answer that because I'd hate to see anybody else as James Bond right now. Uh, he's referring to Craig, of course. Uh, I think he's brilliant. I think he's the best Bond since Sean Connery. No offense, Pierce, uh, Pierce Brosnan. I love you, man. Uh, it's really hard, but I think there's been talks of Idris Elba. I think that'd be really interesting. Tom Hardy. I think that'd also be interesting. Fastbender. I think that'd be my first choice. I think... Michael Fassbender. So that that was Batista's sort of two cents on the issue of who should take on the 007 mantle once Craig uh, moves on to something else. Um, I don't hate anyone on that list. I can see reasons for all of them. I can see reasons for Elba. I can see reasons for Hardy and especially Fassbender. Fassbender is someone I've thought of before. Um, but all this sort of got me thinking about who I would want. And here's kind of where I, I, I would like to throw out into the world, because I don't think anyone has said it anywhere. And if you guys agree with me, I think we should start saying it. I think there's a name that has not been put on anyone's list that should be. And that name is Chris Hemsworth. That's right. I think the guy who currently plays Thor should be the next Bond. Uh, the idea first came to me when I was driving, uh, I was about to get on the RFK Triborough Bridge, and I saw a poster for that, that had Chris Hemsworth on it where he's advertising some, some watch. And I'm going to include the image on, uh, when, I post the, when I post the podcast now. He's just got this look. You guys have to. I, he's wearing a suit. He looks all like you know, uh, suave guy in a suit type deal, and he's pointing a finger at the 
at the camera, and it kind of made me picture just instantly James Bond shooting at the camera like he does in that opening, you know, uh, image that, that comes before all the James Bond movies. And suddenly it just clicked for me that I think Hemsworth would be ideal. I think he'd bring some of that sort of like Roger Moore swagger and fun combined with some of Craig's edge. And if you look at some of his body of work, you know, he's played some hard edge characters, but he's also played characters who are like, you know, who who can kind of poke fun at themselves in a way and who are kind of, you know, lovable galoots, lovable buffoon type characters. And I, you know, if, if we're going to try to make James Bond fun again, if we're going to move away from how serious and dour a couple of these Craig movies have been, and I, I feel like Sam Mendes was like trying to get us back more in the classic Bond vein, especially with, um, what's that one, with Skyfall. Uh, I would love to see a Chris Hemsworth take on 007. Um, I'd lo- and, and, you know, if you guys out there agree or disagree, feel free to let me know via Twitter at I underscore am underscore MFR or at El Fanboy Podcast. Or you can go to the Facebook if you want to write something that's more than 140 characters. There is the MFR El Fanboy Facebook page. Uh, let me know who you think you'd like to see take on the James Bond role and why you think Chris, Chris Hemsworth is either a good choice or a crappy one. Let me know what you think. Um, and then something else before I leave y'all is the fact that we've got another major movie coming out in a couple weeks. That movie is Alien Covenant. And, you know, I've been trying to keep tabs on how that movie is doing, critically speaking. And it looks like you know, the embargo has lifted. So reviews have slowly been pouring in. Right now, let's see, we are, I don't know, 11 days from the release date. And the movie's got 44 reviews in. And with 44 reviews counted, it currently sits at a 75% on the uh, Rotten Tomatoes tomatometer. Um, So it looks like, by and large, people are enjoying the movie. They're not in love with it. Some people say it's a rehash, that it offers nothing new. Um... But overall, it looks like people are really enjoying it. So that's something else I'm going to be keeping a close eye on because I've, you know, I'm hyped for that movie and I'm going to be checking it out. Um, and I'm just, you know, I always try to see what the overall consensus is. So uh, just in case anyone else is curious out there, that's where Alien Covenant is at. With 44 reviews in, it's at 75%. And that does it for the 13th episode of El Fanboy. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and review the show, as well as the official El Fanboy YouTube channel. Until next week, adios.